All right, well, let me pray for us, and then we are going to dive into John chapter 6. That's where we're going to be tonight, and so let's pray together, and then uh, we'll dive in. Father, we thank you that we have uh, such an opportunity to be able to gather together, to be able to hear your word read, to be able to study your word and look at some uh, details that maybe we wouldn't have seen before. God, I pray that as we are working through this text that you will remove any distractions from us, any of our concerns that we brought into this room. God, I pray that we wouldn't just leave them at the door as though they don't exist, but rather we would be submitting them to you. And God, that even in spite of those things that you would speak to us and maybe you would speak to us about those things that we are carrying, those burdens, those stresses, whatever it may be. And that we would see the ample provision from Jesus and that uh, that's something that we can experience today. And so God, we pray that that would happen for us tonight. And as is my custom, I would ask that you would pray for me, and that the words that I say would be beneficial, they would be clear, and be accurate, and that I would say nothing out of harmony with the gospel. If you would, pray that for me. Father, I am humbled by the text that is before us and something that is so familiar to us. God, I pray that we wouldn't treat it lightly. I pray that we would not approach your word in any kind of prideful way as though we already know what it is that you're going to say to us. God, I pray that even in my preparation, as I have been confronted with my own lackadaisical view of something that I already know, God, I pray that you would just shine a light on that and it would demonstrate our need to be able to hear anew what it is that you have to say to us today. And so, Father, I thank you for the chance to be able to teach, and I thank you for the opportunity for all of us to be able to hear and to be encouraged by each other's words, uh, to be challenged by your word. And God, we just pray that you would be honored and that we would be edified during this time. We thank you for all the things that we have in Christ, and we know that in him we find yes and amen. So, Father, we pray this in his name. Amen. All right. So, we are in John chapter 6. Uh, I think I told y'all a couple weeks ago that we, um, we kind of abandoned a little bit of the schedule. Uh, I'll just kind of, if you have the outline and like the schedule of what all we're going to be covering over the next several weeks, if you have that, I'm just going to reference it real quick. Um, generally, this is how everything's going to work out. Tonight, we're going to cover the first third of John chapter 6. Next week, we're going to cover not all of John chapter 6, the rest of it, but we're basically going to cover the rest of it. Then the week after, which is going to be March 22nd, we will not be meeting on Wednesday night. All right, that's spring break. Um, we're not going to be doing Equipping Institute, period. So if you show up here, hey, God love you, but I'm not going to be teaching that night, right? So we're going to take that break on the 22nd. And, but if you notice, we're basically skipping the entirety of John chapter 7. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to shoot a video that's going to fill in the gap between John 6 and 8 so that we actually have that stuff uh, at our disposal. Um, and then from there, we're basically skipping all of John chapter 9. This is one of those points where uh, whenever I was talking with Pastor Anthony about how we were going to break this down, we in, in effect are basically skipping entirely on Wednesday night uh, about six full chapters worth of John. I hate that. 
but we just got to work through it. And so what we're going to do is we're going to shoot a video um, to explain some of those things, fill in some of the gaps. But that's where we are tonight is in John chapter 6, 1 through 21. So um, let us do what we normally do. Let's work through a recap of where we were last week. Um, I shot a video to finish out all of John chapter 5 where we talk through the other two portions of uh, Jesus's defense of his own ministry where he calls witnesses and then he has this indictment against the Jews. Um, if you want to go to YouTube, you can watch that and it'll fill in the gaps. But this is what we need to see. From John chapter 5 all the way through John chapter 10 is a series of escalating conflict, and it's going to get worse and worse and worse. In fact, if you just kind of look back real quick in John chapter 5, you can see there in verse 16 and 18 that the Jews are already persecuting Jesus, and verse 18, they're looking for a way to kill him. Right? That happens in John chapter 5, and that's just basically going to continue for the next six chapters. Make sense? So that's where we need to read everything that happens in John 5 through 10 kind of through that lens. Yeah? So the other thing we talked about, Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. There we have it. And this was one of the big things we talked about last week in John chapter 5, is that whenever Jesus is giving uh, the direct address to the Jews, the Pharisees, the rulers, the religious uh, rulers, he made the claim that he is the giver of life. He is the one who can provide for life and actually raise up life from the dead. And he is the one who is the judge. And he is not just that presently, but he will also be the one in the future who will do that. Those are divine prerogatives. And he says, I'm doing that now and I will do it in the future. Yeah, that's the reason why they were seeking to kill him. And then lastly... One of the things we need to see is that all the way through John chapter 5, Jesus is going hard in the paint. Whenever there is confrontation with Jesus, more times than not, and I, and I can think of like just a handful of occasions um, where this isn't the case, but more times than not, whenever Jesus is confronted with something, he does not back down. In fact, he becomes more aggressive, right? And so this, you know, blue-eyed, blonde-haired, weak, effeminate Jesus who doesn't upset anybody's feelings, that's, that's just not accurate, right? However, as harsh as his words were, the reason why he said those things as directly as he did to the Jews was because he had compassion for them. He wants them to be saved, right? So he is confronting the lies that they were believing with truth, and that came off aggressive. But he was saying those things because he wants them to experience life, yeah? So that's where we were last session. So let's talk about where we are heading this session. Um, a little bit differently, I'm not just going to recap chapter 5, but I do want to give us a bit of a running start because we need to see all of John chapter 6 happening in like one big, um, one big movement. But we're only going to be able to look at two scenes out of the four major ones there. I mean, John chapter 6 is a long chapter. If you just kind of look through it, was it like 71? Yeah, 71 verses. We're not even going to cover every one of those over the next two weeks, right? So I'm going to give us a bit of a running start so we can see it in context. Then we're going to look at John chapter 6, 1 through 15. That's the feeding of the 5,000. This is likely one of the most familiar texts to us as we are reading in the Gospels. This is the only miracle outside of the resurrection. This is the only miracle that is actually recorded in all four Gospel accounts. And because of that, we can kind of get numb to like, oh yeah, I know what's going on here. I'm going to show us some new things there, hopefully. And then we're going to look at verses 16 through 21 where Jesus walks on the water. And there's a lot of stuff that's going on there because 
what is going on in John chapter 6, Jesus is the one who is being portrayed as being greater than Moses. And John is doing that intentionally. And that's why I want to give us a running start on John chapter 6. See these two scenes. Kind of take a big step back to see how it all works out. And then we'll move forward. Final thoughts. Go from there. Yeah? Questions, comments, gripes, complaints? That's the road ahead. All right, so let's get a running start for John chapter 6. Here's the first thing that I want us to see. This is piggybacking off of John chapter 5 where Jesus asserts that he is the one who is the giver of life and he is the judge presently and in the future. So now in John chapter 6, Jesus is going to act out what it means to be the one who is the giver of life and he's going to provide a really tangible way of giving life. He's going to feed a huge number of people, right? And immediately after that, whenever we get into uh, verse 22, does anyone have a subheading over verse 22 in your Bible? Does it tell you something about the next big section? What does your Bible say? Bread of life. So he goes from, I am the one who is the giver of life in John chapter 5. In John chapter 6, he demonstrates that practically by feeding. And then a little bit later in John chapter 6, he says, but I'm not just here to give you some bread. I am the bread of life, eternal life, right? And so we're going to have to see that working together because all of that is really clear that Jesus is the one who is providing abundance and newness, right? This is all the way back in John chapters 2, 3, and 4. We're meant to be read together where some paradigms were set, where Jesus is the one who is bringing about newness and abundance. Well, how does he bring about abundance in John chapter 6? He feeds an incalculable number, as it were. Philip is like, dude, we can't feed these people. And then Jesus feeds these people, right? So he's going to provide in abundance. Not only that, John, our author, is intentionally drawing to our mind that the way that Jesus is providing is in the harshest of circumstances. There was 125 gallons of water in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, that Jesus turns into wine, like, and he doesn't even touch it. He just kind of wills it to happen. Here, he's got like a brown bag special from a little kid, and he feeds 5,000 people 5,000 men, let me phrase that, 5,000 men plus however many kids and women are running around, and there are 12 basketfuls left over. It's the hardest of circumstances, and Jesus just does it without a strain. So we need to see that that's important because all of John chapter 6 is going to a bigger point. So this is the detail that we really need to see. If you go look in the other synoptic accounts of the feeding of the 5,000, John is the only one to give us a little, little clue as to what's going on here. Uh, look with me there in John chapter 6, verse 4. John chapter 6, verse 4, John is the only person to provide this detail. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. He's the only one who gives us that detail, and he's going to pick up on that, and he's going to run with it and say, this is important. When we talk about the Passover, your mind should immediately go to a couple of places in the Old Testament. You should be thinking about Exodus, 
Exodus 8 through 12, really. Like when you have the, the plagues and specifically the Passover in Exodus chapter 12, and then you have the escape in chapter 13 and 14, and then the Song of Moses in chapter 15 on the other side of the Red Sea. Like you should be thinking about these things. There's some other key words here that John is going to use that should cause us to think about Moses, about the Exodus, and about the wilderness. And we'll talk about that here in a bit. So John's the only one that adds this detail and the reason he does that is because he's trying to cast our mind to a very specific set of events that happened in Israel's history. Yeah? And then lastly, there are these four major scenes in John 6, and we're only going to be looking at two of them tonight. Okay? So, you have to know, and I'm just going to tell you right up front, I'm going to preview some of the bread of life comments. I'm going to preview how that works with what he does with the feeding of the 5,000 because John has stitched them together I just don't think I can cover 71 verses in one shot without Sue killing me, right? So, we're going to split it up. We're going to split it up. Yeah? Make that Sue one, not Sue Oh, yeah, I'm make it real clear. We're talking about, uh, talking about Sue Foot up here. So, if I turn up dead someday, y'all know what happened. Yeah. All right, y'all got any questions about what's going on here in John chapter 6? It's a lot. But we've got to see that it all fits together. John chapters 2, 3, and 4, you can look at individually and you can get a whole lot from it, but when you put them all together, you start seeing a whole bunch of paradigms that are being set, and John does that on purpose. You can look at John's chapters 5 through 10, you can look at those six chapters individually, but when you look at them all together, some pictures start getting a lot more clear. That's the same thing as happening within John chapter 6. We need to see it as just a subsection within that, but we're splitting it over two weeks. Sorry. All right, so let us talk about the hungry multitude. I'm going to read verses 1 through 9 in John chapter 6, and then we're just going to make some observations. After this, let's just pause. I don't know how long. It's just after they were in Jerusalem, and now he's down by the Sea of Galilee. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they really focus on Jesus' ministry there in Galilee and around you know, Jesus' hometown. Basically, you can think of uh, Nazareth and Capernaum being like the home bases of Jesus, um, but John focuses primarily on Jerusalem. That was the last chapter in John chapter 5. Now, we're back out in the northern part of the territories. He's out and about like a wild man, yeah? So, after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now, this is what we read earlier, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And then lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, this is the first time we see a large crowd in John, he saw this large crowd coming toward him. Jesus said to Philip, who's from this area, he turns to one dude in particular, Philip, what do you say? Uh, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And he said this to test Philip. He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. And Philip answered him, man, 200 denarii would not be enough, uh, would not, worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to even get a little. And one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, Hey man, there's this boy who's here. He's got five barley loaves and two fish. But man, what are we going to do with that? There's so many people. So, this is a very familiar story. And there's a couple of things that I don't want us to miss. Number one, 
there is this undisclosed amount of time that has passed. John chapters 5 through 10, there's going to be these different feasts. You have the Sabbath in John chapter 5. You have the Passover in 6. 7 through the first half of 10 is the tabernacle of booths. And then the last half of chapter 10 is the Feast of Dedication. Like, so John is giving us a chronology to kind of help us hold all this stuff together. But he's also mentioning the Passover on purpose. It's not just a chronological time frame. Right? So this is, I don't know how much time has passed between John 5 and now. But the last time that we saw a marker like this was the last Passover. Right? And so we're, we're forward in time. That's where we get the large crowd. So if it seems surprising, like, yeah, Jesus has been working. The crowds have been seeing him heal people. And there's all these sick folks who are being healed and delivered from whatever it is that they were being healed from. And so there's this large crowd that's following. Yeah. So I don't know how much time has passed, but a large time has passed. And now there's this crowd that's following because of Jesus' works. And I just want to pause. Last week, whenever we talked about John chapter 5, or no, John chapter 4, whenever Jesus was having this conversation with the woman at the well, and he tells his boys, they're like, hey, Jesus, you should eat. And his answer was, I've got food you don't know anything about. And my food is to do the will of the Father. And I said then that Jesus doing the work that the Father had given him was incredibly important in the Gospel of John. And here you see that that work brings a huge crowd together. Yeah? So, like, don't miss those disparate pieces that we covered, you know, two or three weeks ago because John is bringing all that to bear now. So, it's been this undisclosed amount of time. There's this large crowd. And so Jesus specifically asks Philip, hey, man, what do you think we should do? That 200 denarii, that amount is probably about eight months worth of wages. And, and I get Philip's response here. Right, let's just go ahead and talk about it. He says, dude, like 200 denarii is not enough to even give people a little bit. Let's just pause real quick. Let's not roast Philip. This is precisely the same thing that we do and is not always bad. Hey, here's a problem. How are we going to fix it? Well, let's define the problem. Let's define the need. How great is it? What do we have available to us? How can we meet that need? And so Philip, being pragmatic, says, man, I, I'm starting to do a quick head count. And bro, if we got all the money in the world, this would be rough. And we ain't got that. In wisdom, there are absolutely times for us to be able to rightly assess the need around us, to rightly assess the resources that we have. Like, there's nobody's going to contend with that. However, what changes this situation from what we normally encounter or the way we perceive it is that Jesus already knew what he was planning on doing. We get to know that. Philip didn't. Like, Philip, this takes him by surprise. Like, I can imagine the shock on his face, like, Hey, Philip, how are we going to feed these folks? Uh, what? Why are you asking me, man? Like, I, what, what, do you, what do you want me to do? But what John knows is like, Jesus already had a plan. And I think that a lot of times what we do is that whenever we assess the need around us, we imagine, since I can't fix all of the needs, I will do nothing. And let's just pause and think. Is inactivity normally what God is calling us to? Take that for whatever situation you may find yourself in, whatever need we may find. Like, I just don't think that that's normally the way God works. 
You know, there are times to be patient. There are times to wait. There are times to uh, prepare and be ready to act whenever the Lord's leading you. But like just sitting on your hands is normally not it. But what we do is like, oh, the need is so great. I can't fix all of it, so I will fix none of it. But what ends up happening is there's this little kid. And by the way, this, the word that gets used for kid is also the same word that gets used of, uh, of Benjamin in Exodus in the Septuagint when he's 17 years old. So this could be like a kid. Like, I, I don't know how old this dude is. But what he has, he's, let's just read it real quick. Uh, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves. Does anyone have another translation other than loaves, maybe cakes? Think more, not about like a, like the bread that we just had on those sandwiches. Don't think of that. Think of like, like a piece of that. That's, that's much more likely, likely what he had. And some sardines. That's what we're talking about. Small fish, right? So he brings everything that he has. And he says, I don't know what I can do with this, but, but this is what I have. Whereas Philip, and I don't want to drag him through the mud because I think rightly there's a place to exercise wisdom, but he assesses the need and says, I can't fix all of it. And so we do nothing and immediately contrast that in verse 9 with this random kid that Andrew brings to Jesus who's willing to offer whatever he has, which in the grand scheme of things is nothing. Barley was like peasant food. Like, that's like the low-grade bread. Like, that's the worst kind of bread you can get. It's the cheapest. It's the least munchy. I don't know. It's less desirable. Like, it's not as good, right, compared to what was available to everyone else. And the fish he has is not all that great. But he brings every bit of it. And I think that's where we need to see that Jesus knew what was going to happen in those hard circumstances, 5,000 men, Lord knows how many total people, right? And he's got basically nothing to work with. You can go and look in the synoptics and you'll see that specifically Mark and Luke start detailing how Jesus has them sit down in groups of 50 and groups of 100 and it's much more procedural about how he deals with it. But here in John, it's just, here's a need. It's incalculable. We don't have anything Here's something that can do nothing, that I can do nothing with. What are you going to do with it, Jesus? And it just moves immediately from each of those details to then Jesus is just distributing and providing in an abundance. Are you seeing how that works out here? All right, let's, pa let's pause at verse 9. What you got? It's funny how Jesus is the one who kind of points out the problem. Like, yeah. You saw all those people, you're like, you can't see them. Yeah. But Jesus is the one. Yeah, Jesus brings it up. Yeah. Yeah. And so the, I think the comment to be made there is, I mean, I, I'm not the first person to say this, but God, Jesus, God doesn't ask questions. He doesn't already know the answer to. Hey, what are we going to do about this, fellas? What do y'all think? It's not because he's workshopping. He's got to spitball some ideas to try to figure something out. That's not what's happening. But Jesus forces the issue because in John chapter five, he is the one who is the giver of life. And in a little bit of a hyperbolic sense, if these people don't eat, they die, right? So what am I gonna do? I'm gonna give them life, I'm gonna give them nourishment, yeah? Other questions or observations or questions in the first nine verses here? Well, at this point, it's for, for nourishment. He eventually gets there, yep. Yeah, then I, then I'm exactly, 
And so whenever I talk about that he is going to um, provide in abundance, spoiler alert, he's not just providing in abundance for your physical life. It's forever, right? I've come that you might have life and life in abundance. He's not just talking about the good life here. He's talking about in eternity as well. Yeah? Other questions or observations in the first nine verses? Yeah, so the question there is why did Jesus single out Philip, right? Yeah. And he's singling out Philip. I think the short answer is because Philip's from the region. He's from the area. And I think that's kind of where his brain is already at. Like, he's doing the head count. He's doing the math. Like, we don't have enough to feed these folks. And, like, even if I did, like, I know the guy over there, but, like, he, we don't have enough to buy it. But what he's doing is he's highlighting the need and how vast it is and how little they have at their disposal to meet the need and I'm not saying Jesus is picking on Philip here. He's not. I think he picks Philip out intentionally, but he's not picking on him. So if I, if I made it sound that way, that's, that's not how I intended for that to come off as. Does that answer? Yeah. All right, so let's look at verse 10. Because now, 10 through 15 is when Jesus is going to miraculously provide. Verse 10, Jesus said, have the people sit down. And now there was much grass in the place, and so men sat down, about 5,000 in number, and that's where we know that there was just only counting the dudes, but there's probably all sorts of other people there, wives, kids, hangers-on, whoever, right? And so he had them sit down. Uh, now there was much grass in the place, and the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, and then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, and so also the fish, as much as they wanted. Don't miss that detail. As much as they wanted. Compare that with Philip saying, bro, we can't even give a little bit. And Jesus is just like, it's more and more. Oh, you want some more? I got you, bro. And he just keeps handing it out, right? As much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, hey, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. There might be something more to that statement other than, hey, we don't want this food to go to waste. Don't you think? That nothing may be lost. Verse 13. So they gathered them up and they filled how many baskets? I'm not a rocket surgeon, but I'm also not an idiot either, right? Twelve baskets, twelve disciples, twelve tribes, whatever. Like, I don't know how to make the connection there. But he tells the disciples to go pick up the leftovers and all of them have a basket full. Okay, come on. All right. So he says nothing would be laughed, uh, be lost. Go and gather them up. And they gathered up 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. And in case we miss, this is nothing to start with. It was five barley loaves, remember? Five chunks of bread. And when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet to whom, uh, to who is to come into the world. In verse 15, Perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. All right. Rich.
Yep. Yes, yeah, so the parallel, you, could, you should be seeing it now. When we introduce Moses, when we introduce the next story with Jesus walking on the water, when we introduce the Passover, when we introduce bread and him saying, I'm the bread of life. There's even other things in here where we see where Jesus specifically references the manna. And if you look in chapter 6, verses 41 and 61, there's an excellent Greek word there, gongutso, gongutso, and it means to grumble. And if you're following along with us in Numbers, what's the thing that gets the people killed quicker than anything in the book of Numbers? Complaining and grumbling. Like, they use this word because John the Apostle is trying to get us to see the connection between these two events. Yeah? So, spoiler, that's where we're heading. Yeah? So, let's talk about these in detail. Number one, Jesus had the crowd sit down. Cool. If you go look at the synoptics, it's a little more orderly. But what John is doing is he's moving from huge need, not enough resources, here's this small amount, and then there's this pervasive abundance that just goes to everyone as much as they wanted, and they don't lose anything, and there's 12 baskets left over, right? He is intentionally moving quickly through those details, whereas the synoptics may linger a little bit longer. So he has them sit down, and then he prays, and he multiplies the food. This is not the time for me to get the soapbox and say, oh, well, you know, if you pray, God will do what you ask. But if I don't say that, I'm failing you, <laughs> right? Whenever we talk about prayer, and I'll just say it this way, and this is not too gross of an oversimplification, but I do think it is accurate. There's more nuance to it than this. But whenever you pray, God only answers in one of two ways. He either gives you what you ask for or gives you something better. That's it. Now, the better thing very well may be no. But he only gives the best of gifts. And so Jesus, in a demonstration, people are sitting down. He takes this janky bread that's like low quality and he turns it into something better and he's, a dem he's demonstrating what it looks like to thank God for the provision. Like we're, We don't have recorded for us what the prayer actually was, but if it's anything like typical Jewish prayers at that time before a meal, it would have been something like, Father, thank you for providing for the life that we have for this food. May you be honored. That sounds like an, a completely appropriate kind of prayer for this setting, does it not? And then he starts handing food out as much as they want. Yeah. So he prays, he multiplies the food, and then he provides a lesson for the disciples. And by extension, us. I'm not a rocket surgeon, right? I don't have a huge brain. But I can count to 12, and so could they. These dudes who were confronted with the need and their inability to meet the need and whatever hesitancy they may have had about being able to meet the need that was in front of them with this huge multitude of people, Jesus specifically says, hey, go gather so that nothing is lost and make sure you count as you're going. 
And then all those boys eventually make their way back up to Jesus and they start counting and every one of them's got a basket to the full or to the brim. I can't help but imagine Jesus is kind of looking at them like, you see what I'm doing, fellas? Like, like you, you see what I'm doing? How many baskets do y'all have? Twelve? Okay. Well, how, how, many, how many of y'all are there? Oh, twelve. Huh. Neat. Neat detail of the narrative. No. This is Jesus showing that he meets our needs in abundance. And whenever he says that, there in verse 12, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost, how do you think they went about doing that? Just practically, right? We kind of joked uh, <laughs> in our deacons meeting uh, last Monday that whenever we passed the plates for communion, we were a little rusty and like we kind of like forgot the process. But like eventually everyone, everybody, just about everybody, just about everybody, everybody got the elements, right? But like you're intimately involved with the process of seeing the thing pass every single person. How did these disciples with their baskets get around to everybody? They had to go around to everybody. Are you tracking with that? And what are they going to be reminded of every single time somebody puts some more back in? And when they just saw the brown bag special that Homeboy brought that was nothing, and there's more going in than that dude even brought to begin with. Like, this is a lesson for the disciples in how Jesus goes above and beyond. Yeah? And this is about physical bread and some sardines, right? But we're about to talk about something that is way more than that. Yeah? And that's where we're heading. Cool. Here's the last thing. So then the crowds, like, hey man, this guy's the prophet. Go look at Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 18, and you'll see that what Moses was saying is that God told him, hey, I'm going to raise up among you a prophet like Moses, and he's going to be even better. And when he comes, things are going to change. They rightly assume that Jesus is that prophet. They do. Incidentally, does Jesus tell them they're wrong? No. He doesn't deny it. However... He absolutely is unwilling to let them dictate what it is that he is here to do. Right? Let's pick it up there in verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done, this sign pointing to his marvelous, miraculous provision, this abundance, when they saw that, they're like, this has got to be the guy. Let's make him king. Right? And so Jesus, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force, he avoids this forceful coronation because Jesus will not have a crown without a cross. Don't miss that. Jesus knows the only way that he becomes the recognized king over this world is by dying the death that he is supposed to die for us. And until everything is in place for that to happen, I'm not your guy. That's why we're only in chapter 6, right? Now, you fast forward to John chapter 18, things get a little more dicey, right? And he, just, he starts working his way to the cross. Jesus will not have a crown without a cross, yeah? And you have got to see that this is connected with his signs, his working, his demonstration of his authority over creation, his demonstration of provision of being the life giver, 
He is going to show that he has divine power, but he is unwilling to just be made king by force. Yeah? Comments? Questions? Millie. I'm sorry, Sue, what'd you say? There would be no redemption. Because what the Jews were thinking, what the crowd is thinking, hey, we will just make this guy king by force, and then, you know, then we're going to confront the Romans head on. Uh, What I was looking for, just off the top of my head, um, what D.A. Carson says about this text. Yeah. Yeah. If Jesus was unwilling to assume the prerogatives and responsibilities of such leadership, being the king, they were more than willing to force the issue by fomenting a rebellion, crowning him king, and daring the the authorities to respond, thus forcing him to assume the mantle that they had in mind for him. Okay, guy, you don't want to be king? That's fine. We'll just go start telling everybody you are king. Then what? Right? And so how does Jesus avoid it? He just leaves goes up the mountain further. I don't know exactly how he does it, but he just goes away. He's not willing to do that. Millie? I was thinking Matthew with 12 baskets. 12 baskets? I mean, eating that many people took a long time. Yeah. And so we know the disciples had not eaten, and so I think that this also led, because they didn't have a basket, and God was providing for them. Mm-hmm. Yep. I think that's, so the comment there is that um, if we're thinking about some of the practical nature of how this worked out, there's a good chance that the disciples weren't eating because they're the ones physically distributing it, right? And they're working around, and then everyone eats. And then Jesus says, okay, y'all get it all distributed? Cool. Go pick up the leftovers. And so they may not have even eaten, but then they're sitting there holding a basket full of food at the end, and Jesus is like, now it's your turn. I can see that working out. We don't have the text to clearly tell us that's what happened, but it makes sense to me. It makes sense to me. That's good. Other thoughts or questions about the feeding of the 5,000? Rich. Well, there's something interesting about these first six chapters that we've seen about Jesus asked the woman at the well for a drink of water. Mm -hmm. He was physically thirsty. Mm -hmm. You should eat. You should eat. Mm-hmm. We brought you food. Yep. But my food is my father's work. Mm-hmm. So he is making the people think about not just temporal things, but eternal things. Yep. So the comment there at the very end is like when you look at John chapter 4 with this conversation with the woman at the well, he asks her for a drink. After that conversation ends, Jesus is, has his boys there, and they've got food, and they're like, hey, you should eat. And his answer is, hey, I've got food to eat you don't know anything about. It's to do the will of the Father. And then here we have him perceiving that everyone else is hungry. Like, there's this clear indication that Jesus is not only providing for their physical needs, but also spiritually, he's pointing to something more grand, the work that my Father has for me, And that's a lesson for the disciples. Hint, hint, guys. When I'm gone, what are y'all going to do? The work of the Father. The same thing. He actually tells, in fact, let's just turn back there real quick. Go back to John chapter 2. I'm sorry, John chapter 1. If you look in verse 48, 
This is Nathaniel and Philip. Jesus speaking to Nathaniel after Jesus had said, hey man, there's, a, there's an honest dude right there. I know this guy. Great guy. Never met him, right? Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered him, before Philip called you, you were under the fig tree and I saw. Nathaniel answered, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered, hey, because you know that I saw you under the fig tree, you believed. That's great. However, the end of verse 50 you're going to see greater things. And what my contention was, the greater things is what happens in Cana in John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, with the water into wine, his first demonstration of divine prerogatives. However, if we take a larger view, this is Jesus saying, there's going to be greater things you're going to see, and you're going to do some of them too. Right? Because that's the will of the Father to be at work. Yeah? All right. Final thoughts on 10 through 15. All right, so let's talk about Jesus and his power over creation. Seems like a weird time to mention that, but let's look at verses 16 through 21. And when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Remember, Jesus went up the mountain, they went down it, right? They went down to the sea, they got into a boat and started across the sea, across the sea to Capernaum, or Capernaum. And it was now dark. Does that ring any bells for you? It's now dark. Remember when we talked about Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that every time we see dark or darkness in John, it's not just a marker of time. It's also like an indicator of like things are probably not great. Here we go. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. And the sea became rough because of the strong wind that was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, uh, the Sea of Tiberias, the Sea of Galilee, is about seven miles across and about 13 miles long. So these cats are like in the middle. They're in the worst part. You can't turn around. It's the same distance that way as it is this way, right? This is like dire straits here. They rode for about three or four miles. <laughs> Excuse me. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. Yeah, I bet. Mark tells us that they thought he was a ghost. Like, like they don't even have a category for what they're seeing. Like, there's got to be a specter, right? And he's like, no, no. And what does Jesus say? He said to them, it is I. Do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land that they were going to. So Jesus' power over creation is immediately displayed after this huge victory that they had seen. The lesson for the disciples is that God, through Jesus, is going to provide abundantly for all of your needs, and they are on a spiritual high, and what's the first thing they run into? We're about to die, right? I think that's purposeful, right? That will happen to us as well. So, let's talk about it. So, the disciples take to the water, and what we know about some of these cats, they're fishermen. These ain't just you and me getting in a boat and about to die. Like, these are dudes who know what's up, and they're about to die, right? They're losing their minds. And a storm-whipped sea is incredibly dangerous. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is about 600 feet below sea level, and it's kind of surrounded by mountains on both sides, and so the wind comes howling down the mountain, and it whips up this huge storm, and it's rough. Like, the whole point is, like, this is not just, oh, we'll be fine. Like, that's not this situation. But here's the deal. Jesus just treads right on the danger. As dangerous as everything is, 
Jesus doesn't seem to be affected by it at all. Why might that be? Why might that be? Because he's the one that made that thing. I'm not worried about this water. Incidentally, whenever you look, especially in the Old Testament, uh, water is almost always bad. And I'm not just talking about the flood, um, but there's a connection between water and chaos or disorder or danger just in general. And what do we see Jesus doing not only just with water? That would have been cool if it was like just a, you know, a pond that was just placid and he could just walk across. That would be pretty slick. But this is like a storm-tossed sea and he's walking on it. He is demonstrating he has absolute authority over the thing that will kill you doesn't phase him. Right? The same way that if I don't feed you, you might die. I know I'm being hyperbolic, but like run with the idea. Like I'm the giver of life. I will give you what you need. I ain't worried about this storm. And he just walks right across it. Yeah? Sue? It's almost like I selected that word on purpose, right, Sue? That the proto-evangelium, right? The first gospel, Genesis 3.15. That the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, there's going to be this crushing of the head, treading on it. Water, danger, chaos, darkness. You see what I'm getting at here? These are not just incidental details that John is providing for us. He is painting a picture of how in complete control Jesus is of the situation. Yeah? That's wonderful, Genesis, like some deer in the smoke. What, some dude walks on the water? <laughs> Shoot. I bet he's got a wire or something somewhere, right? So, what does he do? He speaks to the disciples. And don't miss this. My translation, the ESV says, it is I. Does anyone else have another translation? There in verse 20, but he said to them, called out to them so I think that this is casually should be translated as it is I it's me fellas don't worry however do not miss what the words actually are it's ego a me I I am and whether or not this is a distillation of the I am statements that John is going to unfurl for us in the rest of the gospel account that he gives whether or not it's intentional I find it really hard to think it's not. And so here in like the most condensed version, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd, right? We can unfurl all those. But here he just says, I am. And when you hear the words, I am in the Bible, where should your mind go? Yahweh. A personal name. God, I know you're the Lord, but like, who am I supposed to tell people who sent me? Yahweh. I am. I am. I sent you, Moses. Go do what I told you to do. So he speaks to them, and I don't think there's any coincidences here in John chapter 6. So the last thing is, then they arrive safely. What about that? Isn't that crazy? They're in the middle of the sea, 
And then they arrive safely. Now, this could be the same way John was moving from really quick succession with the feeding of the 5,000 that like, here's a huge need. We got no way to meet it. Here's very little resources. And then Jesus just fixes it. It could be very similar that Jesus is saying there was a in the boat and then there was a storm. They're halfway out there and then they're across. But here's the point. Either way, what we get at is Jesus is unconcerned with this and he provides even for their life right then. Yeah? They are immediately at the other side of the shore. Cool? All right, so any other questions about 16 through 21? <clears throat> I got one more slide, then we'll get to our final thoughts. Ed. Yeah, because they're having to row. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to tell if John is counting this as one of the signs, specifically as the seven signs in the book of signs here in John chapter 1 all the way through 11. Um, it's hard to tell if that's what he's doing, but at a minimum, it's miraculous. I mean, walking on the water, like, I can't do that. Sight and sound folks can, apparently, but I can't, right? You tracking with me? Other comments? All right, so let's make some connections here. Jesus is greater than Moses. He just is. In fact, let's go to Hebrews real quick. I'm going to read something. I'm going to fly through some of this real quick. Hebrews chapter 3. If you want to understand what the book of Hebrews is about, here it is. Jesus is greater. End of story. Greater than what? Angels, the law, Moses, the sacrifices, Melchizedek, the temple, the new temple that they just made. Doesn't matter what it is, Jesus is greater. Look in John, or excuse me, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle, the one who was sent, the great one who was sent from God, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful. Yeah, Moses was a pretty cool guy, did some cool stuff. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. If you thought Moses was cool, he doesn't hold a candle to the creator of Moses. Yeah? So, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all of God's house as a servant to testify to the things that will be spoken later, but Christ is faithful, faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast to the confidence and our boasting and our hope. And hey, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts, guys. That's where Hebrews goes. Let's talk about Jesus being greater than Moses. Number one, John is specifically adding detail that forces us to think about Moses at the Passover. You should be thinking about Exodus chapter 12, specifically at least. The Passover. If we're thinking about not only that, well, actually, let's just run through this. We just talked about how Jesus is better than Moses. Rock on. But here's the deal. Jesus is leading all of us in a new exodus. There's this paradigm that is set from the exodus, and that paradigm is, hey, God is going to miraculously save his people. And whenever you look all through the Old Testament, when you look at Stephen's sermon, in Acts chapter 6 and 7, he starts off with God has provided for his people and he has saved us. 
and he looks to the Exodus, the way out of Egypt. That sets the paradigm, but then Jesus fulfills everything. Number one, he is the Lamb of God. He doesn't sacrifice some other lamb. He is the Lamb of God. Moses was pretty cool. Jesus is better. Moses led the people through the sea. What did Jesus do? He ain't got to split that joker. He can just walk across it. Whenever they get out in Sinai and then they start out in the, the, the wilderness, they don't have any food. And so what does God provide? Manna. What is it? Literally, that's what manna means. What is this? Like, I don't know. It, it's bread from heaven. Eat it. You'll be fine, right? And so Jesus rains down this bread that they need for their life right then. But where we are going back in John chapter 6, starting in verse 22, he says, guys, I'm the bread of life. It ain't about what I did yesterday. It's about what I'm going to do for you for the rest of your life into the future, into eternity. Moses fails. Jesus does not. This new Exodus language, you can go read Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. And Mark starts off with, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that he announces that the kingdom is here. He's going to go and start preaching. We start seeing that in Mark 1, 14, 15, 16. But what he starts off with is this announcement from Isaiah saying, something new's coming, guys. And it's going to make whatever happened before look like peanuts. The way that God provided there was miraculous and amazing. Just wait. Are you seeing this? All of John 6 is forcing us to think in those categories. Yeah? Comments, questions? Ashley. Mm-hmm. Yep, to repeat the question, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, are really demonstrating Jesus' humanity. I think that's true, but they're also demonstrating his divinity, to, to be fair. It's more nuanced than that, but yes. And then in uh, John's account, it was really driving at that we're showing Jesus' divinity. And what my point would be is go read John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs. Go read the synoptics. You'll find out all about a whole bunch of other stuff he did, right? In the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these things that I have selectively chosen and I have curated so that you get more information about Jesus to get a better picture or a different picture, said it better that way, to get a different picture of Jesus. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. So yeah, I think that everything John is doing is meant to drive us toward this isn't just some guy. He is the Word and in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was distinct, he's separate, but he is also divine. Yeah? So yeah, I would agree with that, insofar as that goes, at least. Other thoughts about Moses? We'll do our final thoughts, and then we'll have any other questions. All right, let me run through these. Number one, God is going to use circumstances to grow your faith. Word? Does anybody want to share a testimony of how God uses circumstances to grow your faith? If I'd have left us another 30 minutes, we could do that. We know this to be true. Let me drive that point home. The more difficult the circumstance, the more that God gets to show out. 
200 denarii would not be enough to give everyone just a morsel of Jesus. What do you think we are going to be able to do? Hey, man, I got some leftovers. Will that work? It's precisely what I need. Right? The greater the need, the more difficult the circumstances, the more God gets to show out because he is going to use circumstances to grow your faith. Do not be surprised after a great victory, like we saw there in the first part with the feeding of the 5,000, that you might almost die. Don't be shocked, right? That's not uncommon for the way God works. Number one. Number two, we got to guard against being too familiar with these stories. If I impressed upon you how marvelous a provision this is for 5,000 numbered men and however many untold folks. We can read these, and because they are in all four gospel accounts, we can just kind of blow right past it. But John provides these details like, hey guys, make sure that nothing is lost. I think we ought to be just more amazed by Jesus. That was what I was learning this last week. Even as I'm studying, I'm just like, ah, crap. Like, I'm that guy that's like, oh yeah, I know what's going on here. Rich? I'm always amazed when I read through it because I never got my mind wrapped around it in the first place. <laughs> You're better than me then, that's for sure. So let me caution us with this point specifically. We've got to guard against being tired of these familiar stories. Don't think that we can't do that with the resurrection. Every year, we have these rhythms built in to talk about Matthew and Luke around Christmas, and then whichever flavor of the gospel you want to talk about with the resurrection every Easter, and it just becomes ho-hum. It can happen. And it may be happening to you right now, frankly. If that's the case, what I would pray and urge you to do is just read it and be amazed by what God has done through Jesus for you. We can't get tired of these things because it is miraculous. It is meant to show Jesus' divinity, show his compassion and his love for us. Yeah? Here's my last thing. Jesus is going to fulfill all that the Scripture said about him. There's going to be a prophet, kind of like Moses, but way better. He's going to come. He's going to, it's, it's going to be crazy. It's going to blow your mind. Just wait. And the crowd gets it right. Hey, he is the prophet. But Jesus says, not yet. I got more work to do. I got more people that need healing. I got more people who need to see these demonstrations. I need to be displayed on a cross for you. Everything that Moses experienced with the Exodus and how grand of a deliverance that was in Exodus and all the way through Numbers. He dies on the precipice of like looking into the land and he never actually gets to enter God's rest. Jesus is the one who created that rest, y'all. He's the author of those things. It was his idea. Everything that was said about what God would do is going to be accomplished through Jesus. And if we get tired of hearing that, we need to reconsider what we actually think about Jesus. If that bores us, then I pray that the Holy Spirit would wreck you a little bit so that we might see it new, so that we can actually see just how big a deal Jesus is and our salvation is. Yeah?
Questions, comments, concerns, thoughts? Mike. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of detail that's coming in there, but I, I hear your point there. Like the way in which John describes the details of they got in the boat, they got out in the water, they had to row hard, there was a storm, they're about to die, and Jesus is just walking on it, and then boom, there they are at the other side. What happened to the last three and a half miles, right? Is it unfathomable to think, you know, the God of the universe could just like get there immediately? No, of course not. Like, not after feeding 5,000 people with a brown bag special. That's nothing, right? Doing it in front of people. This wasn't sleight of hand, right? It's already showing miraculous power. So, yeah. Other comments or observations or questions? Which he meets their needs. Yep. And then, but the disciples needed to learn that you can trust in me to provide everything you need. Yep. Uh, I think I agree with those comments. Is Jesus going to surprise you with what you're going to learn? Lord, I hope so. How many times do we see Jesus zig when we think he's going to zag? Right? All the time. I mean, Anthony preached about this cat, they knock a hole in the roof and drop this guy down. Instead of Jesus saying, hey, man, you're healed, what does he tell this dude? Hey, your sins are forgiven, dog. <laughs> well, hang on, man. Like, the guy's paralyzed. Like, what? Are you not going to address that? Oh, that's easy. Yeah, get up. Get your stuff. You can leave now. Right. He can, he, he's going to surprise you, and he should. And that's a good thing. Yeah? Um, and then what Jesus is teaching, what the Lord is teaching us is, is precise. This is not just this ephemeral kind of outside-the-box creator of the universe who is impersonal. No, 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 he is very personal as well. And he meets your needs. Not only your sins, but the sins of the whole world is the way that John says it in 1 John chapter 3. Yeah? Other thoughts before we finish because it's already late? Thanks, Jessica. <laughs> Any other questions or comments? All right. Next week, we are going to look at 
John chapter 6, verses 22, and we're going to basically go through 59, which is going to leave about a dozen verses at the end of the book or the end of the chapter that we're going to leave on the table. Um, but we will be filling that in next week. We are here, the one after. I'm not going to be here. Do with that what you will. Yeah? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that we have such a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us in every way. God, that we know that he is not unlike us. He is like us in so many ways in our humanity and our, our struggles and even temptations. But he is absolutely other than us because he is yet without sin. And so, Father, we praise you for what it is that you have accomplished for us through your Son. We thank you for your wisdom and the way that you have ordered life to work and that we can see glimpses of that through your word. And God, I pray that you would show us even more about who you are and what you're wanting us to learn and what you're wanting us to um, see happen in our lives as a result of that. Father, we thank you for tonight. I pray that these truths would be driven down into our hearts. And God, that would change who we are. And we pray all this in your son's name. Amen. If you got questions, I'll be up here.